as we come to the word, just before we come to the word, um, we're going to pray a short prayer of illumination. And we're going to do that now. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that your word is available to us in a language that we understand. <clears throat> Thank you for the many lists of names that you've included that remind us that we as individuals are seen and known by you and that each of us have a place in your amazing plan. Renew this wonder in us of how detailed your plan for our rescue actually was and continues to be. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can look into the word and see us, but that mostly we see you providing a way for us to be with you. And we do praise your name as we come to your word. In the name of the Father and Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, amen. This is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6a. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, never have trouble with that one, okay, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. fun moment when you choose to preach on the genealogy and just wonder how it's going to go. Uh, the scripture here, Matthew the author, asks us um, to really understand the whole story of God's pursuit of his people through a very stylish genealogy. He's not at all trying to name everyone in Jesus's lineage, but is telling the story of God. Um, talking about Abraham and David but the formation of the way he makes the genealogy is around David to make a point about Jesus. Just waiting on an app that's rated 2.7 out of 5 on the App Store to catch up with what we're doing. What kind of people are in this lineage? Abraham is celebrated uh, many times, perhaps most especially in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, as a man of faith. But he's also a passive man who made some very significant mistakes. Lies to a king, God punishes the king, the king's like, dude, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then because Abraham, not, not exclusively so, but was passive, his son makes the same mistake. King has to say, dude, to Isaac in the same way. Because we know this about generational sin. Unrepented generational sin will continue because it won't be healed and we won't learn a new way. 
Abraham was a man who lived by faith, but he was a flawed man who lived by faith. Matthew gives a very different genealogy than the, uh, the one in Luke, and there are eight theories about it. I thought there were nine. I double-checked. There are eight, and I'm just going to tell you one of them because I think it's the most profound and because you don't need to hear the eight, but I do tell you there are eight because it's important. Because if you read through the Bible and you were to go back and check, you're like, there are descendants that Matthew's skipping. Why is he skipping them? And it's an important question because whether you realize it or not, whether you're the kind of person that will stop and study that way or not, that influences your um, assessment of whether this is a trustworthy book. So Matthew's doing something with the name David which had three consonants in uh, Hebrew, and he's multiplying it by the generations to give a picture that the new king is of the line of David. The fulfillment of the kingship of David is Jesus. The perfect king is the one who's coming. And David, though very flawed in his perhaps most famous story, stands between the people and their foe. And that is not a story about the challenges in your life. That's a story about your need for a king who will stand between sin and death and defeat those things on your behalf. You respond by trusting that king. And then by being deeply grateful in prayer, in song, in deed, and then by obeying and following that king. The Bible makes a very interesting shift after Genesis chapter 11, what many uh, scholars and people call primordial history, a history not as concerned with uh, specific details, but with the grand scheme of things. And then it takes a turn directly onto a family, a family that's small and continues to be small for the second generation and then starts to expand and then expands greatly. But the center of Matthew's genealogy is David. Because, not because David is great, but because of the kind of king that he was. The kind that would stand between his people and their enemy. The kind that, especially when he was in challenging circumstances, responded with humility before the Lord and led the people in worship and prayer and weeping and then into battle. This kind of king is the one who's going to stand before an even worse enemy than Goliath or the Philistines or other Israelites, as the case sometimes was, but sin and death. And the opportunity for us is uh, one that I think most of you are familiar with, which is do we trust this king, the one that made himself vulnerable and became a baby then lived and taught and modeled and conflicted that we might understand who God is in God's heart? Do we trust him? Do we give our allegiance to him? And the Bible makes this a more complicated question than just that because the alternative is trusting yourself and you might be very smart but are you always hydrated enough, well-rested enough, exercised enough, caffeinated enough to make wise and good decisions on behalf of God and one another? I don't think I'd make a good king. I would be much, much too worried about making everybody in the kingdom happy. 
I know many of you are more mature than that and would make a better king than me. Would you make a good king all the time? The Bible presents to us that the alternative to receiving Jesus as king is then we're the king. Do you trust him? Are you grateful that he came to earth and took on flesh? That not only to atone for our sins, but so that we know he can relate to every kind of human suffering. The public shaming on the cross is far more profound in the way, the many ways that he suffered than I think many of us realize. But this is the order. Do we trust him? Are we grateful? Then we follow the king chooses a family. And uh, as many of you know, I'm very, very fond of the Jesus Storybook Bible. There are at least six sections of it I could read this morning. I'm only going to read one. Many of you probably don't love that I read from a children's book. Um, there's a version of this book that's gray with no pictures. And if you don't have a copy of it, I encourage you to buy that one. If you don't want it to look like a children's book, that's, that's fine. Listen, I know I've said this before. It's worth saying again. She is as clear, especially about some of the more, heart, more challenging to understand parts of the Bible than anyone I've ever read. Scholastic, Christian inspiration, Christian living, regular pastor, she's as clear as it gets. And when we're looking at the challenges of some of the people in this genealogy, I know not all of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 38. It's a challenging chapter. That's the one about Tamar. I sometimes wonder, people that are newer to the faith who go through the one-year Bible, what's it like when you get to Tamar? Or even before that, Genesis 22. Anyway, Sally Lloyd-Jones explains this incredibly well in the story and the song, which is her intro. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing, the way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. 
And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture, and this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. So God is choosing a family that will conclude not their lineage, but his with the birth of Jesus. But what kind of men are in here? I mentioned before that Abraham is passive and he passes that passivity on to Isaac. I did not mean to do that. And for me, no, not for me. That's an apologetic to the scripture. That's one of the reasons we can trust the scriptures. Over and over, and especially in the New Testament, the authors of the books that they're in help you to see that they didn't get it. Helped you to see some of their mistakes. Times that they had to be corrected by Jesus. They are not at all celebrating or championing themselves. And that increases our trustworthiness in the scriptures. That increases our knowledge of the veracity, the truthfulness of the scriptures. There is one person especially in this uh, lineage who is quite faithful. He's an exception. His name is Boaz. Boaz lived during the time of the judges, which says everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is Bible for horrific, violent, and terrible. If you think I'm exaggerating, read the book of Judges. It gets almost NC-17 at points because of how violent humans get when they do what's right in their own eyes. And that is often the time that Christians are able to uh, shine. Not broadly in a, as, a cele- as a celebrity, but in small moves of faithfulness. Boaz takes in and cares for uh, a woman named Naomi who lost her husband and her two sons and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. He's kind to them. It's clear that he protects the poor that are nearby. He's wise and takes his time. But he's the exception in this lineage. It's a pretty curious lineage. There's another Tamar in scripture around the time of David. She had a rough go also. But the one that um, Matthew is referencing, her husband mistreated her. The Lord intervened, but he didn't uh, bless Tamar's life. At that time, uh, if, if you have a brother and you pass away, your brother is supposed to carry on your lineage. His brother also mistreated Tamar. God intervenes, but he doesn't bless. And Tamar takes matters into her own hands and restores her legacy through her father-in-law. You think the Bible's a boring book, and that's because we sometimes don't unpack these stories. This time, God blesses her by restoring her family's legacy. Because God goes after those that are mistreated, those that are outside, and he brings them in. Ruth, her story is as beautiful as any. Unless we're paying close attention to all of scripture, Ruth was a Moabitess. They worshiped violent, horrific, murderous, demonic gods. 
So if you know the scripture and you read in the book of Ruth that she's a Moabitess, you're like, oh boy, this is going to go really poorly like it did in the conquest of Canaan. And yet Ruth learned enough from her (laughs) mother-in-law about Yahweh that even after losing her father-in-law and her brother-in-law and her own husband, she chose to stay with her mother-in-law and go back to the nation of Israel to leave the demonic, violent, Moabite deities and to choose the God of covenant. The Lord blesses her trust in him and her gratitude and obedience. That's why she's listed in the lineage of Jesus. And then we have Rahab, who's not only celebrated here, but also in the book of James and in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is probably a better version of the sermon I'm preaching to you today, but I chose to preach from Matthew. Rahab's a Canaanite prostitute. And this is actually important to understand because one of the more challenging parts of the scripture is the conquest of Canaan. Because a lot of people died. And they all had the opportunity to do what Rahab did because they all knew the reputation of Yahweh. If you will bow before him, you're good. If you will make peace with his people, that's not as good as bowing before him. But if you violently, actively harm his people, he will wait and give you every chance. And then you're toast. Rahab knew that reputation and responded the way everyone in Jericho should have. Took in the Israelite spies, protected them. That's why she celebrated in James 2 and Hebrews 11 and by Matthew in chapter 1. She responded with humility and worship of him and courage. A little bit like the Ninevites that Jonah very begrudgingly shared the gospel with. And they were like, great, our way is no good, we'll follow your way, and they were saved. The reason these stories are in Jesus' lineage is because they're true stories that display to us God's heart that he goes to the outsider. He always hears. He always saw what was happening to Tamar and the circumstantial agony Ruth was going through and Rahab's humility and interest in worshiping him and he brings them into his family. the king that Matthew is beginning to talk about chooses a family with curious lineage to bring in his kingdom so that we know what kind of king he is. With those that are humble before him, he is gentle. With those that oppose him through their arrogance, he corrects with clarity, sometimes more fiercely than we're comfortable with. And ultimately, he is the king that stands between his people and enemies they could never withstand. Death. Sin. What kind of kingdom is he bringing in? One where we are close with the king and in receiving that are made stable. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. What kind of kingdom? One where we can actually be kind to every neighbor in our life, even if that kindness means not speaking with them for a time. Because he, while we were enemies, came and rescued us. And that's the kind of kingdom we're invited into and then get to participate with. It requires wisdom, but it is available because that is what he purchased, that's what he gave and modeled and commanded, especially perhaps in Matthew 20 and 21 where he tells stories 
about the kingdom. What kind of kingdom? One where you're given purpose and meaning. And maybe it's less purpose than you want. Maybe it's far more. Sometimes when I'm here on Sunday morning, I'm like, oh my gosh, my responsibility to teach these people the word of God. It's humbling. Other times I'm kind of excited. Make no mistake, this is a kingdom where you're invited in to participate because your gifts and your circumstances and what you care about in the world are beautiful and good when they're wrapped into allegiance to the king. I'm reading this beautiful book about aging and this eclectic doctor who took over as the the, um, attending physician at a nursing home was like, everyone's not flourishing. So he goes out, works through the system, buys two dogs, four cats, and 100 parakeets. His wife got a call at 3 a.m. from a nurse who said dog pooped on the floor. Nurse took a chair, puts it over the poop because she didn't want to clean it up. She's a nurse. She didn't sign up to clean up after the dogs. What happened with the patients? They needed less medication. Patients that they thought were nonverbal and nonambulatory were coming up to the nurse's station saying, whose turn is it to walk the dog? And the nurse like, Because oftentimes, though not always, and we all do this differently, when a human sees another living creature, they know they have some purpose in that creature flourishing. And it connected the dots to their humanity. That's the kind of kingdom. Read the parables of Jesus. He invites people in. Whenever they come in, he not only brings them in, not only restores their hearts, not only says you're part of this family, but then gives them a role. It is a kingdom of purpose. My hope in preaching this series is that when you see the gifts, or don't, because you're estranged from family or choosing to not be with them, but you'll still see them represented around in the culture. You remember that you, if you've given your allegiance to Jesus, have received the gift, which is Christ. My hope is that when you see lights, you remember that he is the light of the world who not only draws you to himself, but by his light helps you to see the world with clarity and not have to rely on yourself can be guided by him. And that regardless of whether Christmas is an absolute joy or somewhat challenging or entirely challenging because of family, you remember that you are drawn into God's family. Full of lovely, faithful people like Boaz, but more full of misfits. Like us. Because he is that good. And that's what he did in sending his son. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for choosing these men and women to be part of the lineage of your son, Jesus. By their stories and your pursuit of them and your shepherding of them and this family and this story, may we know your heart and that it is good towards us. May we trust that heart. May we grow in gratefulness. May we then follow you unapologetically, unhesitatingly, with joy. Amen.